Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast where you will find insight analysis and the story behind the numbers. Hello everybody. Welcome to the BL State of the Economy podcast. I am Shrivaj from Business Line and today we have a very interesting topic at hand which is reforming the insolvency and bankruptcy code IBC 2.0 as it were. Nearly seven years have passed since India enacted this landmark legislation of IBC, and we are now entering a very crucial phase. Government is now contemplating a revamp of IBC so as to help India move into a higher growth trajectory through an efficient IBC ecosystem. At this crucial juncture, we invited a special guest, Sumit Khanna. partner deloitte india to help us better understand what initiatives and reforms may be required under ibc 2.0 to give a further impetus to the entire ibc ecosystem kanna heads both the corporate finance and restructuring services verticals for deloitte india he has overall 26 years of work experience and has built the bankruptcy and insolvency practice of deloitte india from scratch he has helped steer not just the management and operations including business turnaround of some of the largest and most complex cases in the country but also helped in getting for them a suitable resolution by running a successful m&a process he has been working with deloitte since 2015 and prior to that he has worked for various national and international banks and financial institutions Now, thank you, Sumit, for agreeing to be part of this State of the Economy podcast from Business Line. And the topic that we have today is a very interesting one on insolvency and bankruptcy code 2.0. We are now into uh-huh. the seventh year of IBC. So let me be a bit frank and ask you: What is your take on IBC so far? and uh, can you throw some light on what are the big challenges being faced by the entire ibc ecosystem as on date so uh, firstly shivat thank you so very much uh, for having me <clears throat> on this podcast uh, i must confess it's the first time i'm doing a podcast so i'm i'm very excited about this excellent excellent so, uh, mm. i can speak about ibc we have in a manner of speak we have lived uh, the insolvency and bankruptcy code for the last 7 years and i can tell you very frankly that it's probably the best one of the best pieces of legislation that i have ever come across and uh, it was uh, put in place by the government after much thought with a lot of sincerity i think it did serve a lot of purpose the way initially the implementation of the insolvency and bankruptcy code happened it went through and the government made sure they started with the largest cases and you know we were all not only very very apprehensive but we were all uh, also quite uh, uh, dismissive about what kind of success this experiment as we called it at that time would have with the dirty dozen coming in but uh, the government made a very bold decision and i think they did the right thing by putting up uh, the largest and the most complex cases up front we had an excellent start and since they were the largest most complex cases they also helped set precedents and ground rules for the law to come now unfortunately some things went wrong as uh, happen in every good story and uh, essentially you know 
India by nature is uh, uh, extremely litigious as a society. And also there is very little cost for uh, being wrong about a litigation. So uh, as with the passage of time, litigations became more and more. The courts were overburdened to begin with, or other in this case, the tribunals. And uh, uh, hence, you know, the hearings became further and further apart. People initially were less trained and the government put in a lot of effort, put in new trained judges for the tribunals and the appellate tribunals, increased the number of benches. But still, these bunches are inundated with cases and the process is, you know, kind of slow, so to speak. The other big problem which happened was with the interpretation of the law. So despite judgments, again and again, the interpretation of the law was challenged. And uh, when some of these things went back to different judges, as the case may be, especially at the Supreme Court level, it is not necessary that we got a uniform interpretation back. And that was limiting. And then the government had to go back and again clarify a few times. And uh, that problem still remains, you know, the most uh, evident case being uh, in terms of how to, you know, treat government dues in an insolvency process. So these are some of the challenges that cropped up. And I think uh, version 2.0 is clearly going to be an attempt by the government to uh, correct uh, some of these flaws that set in and uh, make the process more efficient, faster, quicker, less painful for everyone. So that's really my take on it, uh, Shivats. Okay, thank you for that. So are the challenges that you identified, do they still persist? Of course. So the process is still very slow and the slowness comes, you know, at a number of places. First of all, once there is a filing, okay, then from filing to admission in itself can at times be a very, very long drawn process. The government has, through the tribunals now, you know, given a diktat about how applications need to be taken up on precedence. But when you take up applications on precedence, then uh, the judgments and hearing for ongoing matters suffers. Uh, that said and done, the fact of the matter is that either there is a default or there is not. So the main thing over here is, like I told you, the law was beautifully written. It's a very simple law. As a matter of fact, it has very limited role for tribunals and uh, courts to play in it. It is all on the commercial wisdom of the committee of creditors. And then there are some very well-defined instances for which you can or cannot be insolvent. So once there is an instance of insolvency, the induction into the process should be more or less automatic. However, since courts want to have a role to play and they hear this out, it often becomes a long-drawn and protracted process or the admission itself. The second stage for delay is when lots and lots of irrelevant and uh, tedious uh, litigation is put up by various potential stakeholders, most importantly, by either the promoter who's going to lose control of the company or some of the people instigated by the promoter come in with litigation. Now, that leads to delay in resolution, that leads to leakage, and it leads to loss of value. Sorry to interrupt. So do you then agree to the perception in certain quarters that promoters continue to game the system? Perhaps they do. In some ways, they do. In the absence and of legal clarity. Yes. Because uh, for some reason, if you ask me, actually, insolvency is not bad from a promoter's point of view. Because once insolvency is done and over with, then what happens is the past is also done and over with for the promoter. But for some reasons, 
the promoters feel that they should continue you know meddling with the affairs of the company and mm. if the insolvency closes then probably they are going to be at a more disadvantageous position also at times they are some not all but they are a few promoters who do gain from the ongoing operations in unscrupulous ways and so on so forth you know at times some promoters try to get friends and families in the saddle through a resolution process so they are all net permutations net. and combinations that happens here so net net are there gaps that need to be filled yes in terms of admission of a process it should be automatic if a default is established then as per the code in the given time period there should be an automatic admission for the insolvency if which is anyone not happening to, now which is not happening which is not the law right mm. now the tribunal hears it and decides whether the insolvency should go through or not mm. so once so, they overcome that it will be a big blessing let's go to the larger picture i i bc mm-hmm. 2.0 what should be the alien features that the government should look at so first thing for efficiency admission should be automatic okay if somebody wants to challenge it can then challenge on grounds which they deem fit but if there is a default then there should be no question of why the default or whether the default is justified or not because that defeats the purpose most people are using this even institutions are using this to actually negotiate and do recovery and that was never the purpose of the insolvency law second thing is frivolous litigation should be attached a cost to so when people litigate then there should be serious grounds for litigation and if they are not found then there should be a cost to the litigation so that will again clean out a lot of things third thing that should be done is that once again the government needs to clarify the waterfall under section 53 of the insolvency bankruptcy code because there have been one or two judgments or rather there has been a particular judgment which has caused a lot of confusion which is the rainbow papers judgment because of which all government agencies are going and putting claims again saying that we are secured creditors okay even so resolution is passed even after resolution is passed at times and actually that has always been the case even without rainbow papers because uh, the government agencies don't just seem to give any credence to the orders so the and there's a valid reason for that i don't blame them for it shivats what happens is that the government agencies are very very worried about the three cs so invariably even though they know it is a government order even though when they know it is uh, it's a court order even when they know the court order is justifiable they are incapable of settling the court order because it would be seen that they gave away without exercising their uh, right to litigation so we have to find a way and i'm not qualified to say what that way is to discourage such behavior because then what happens is that even when the court has very summarily you know put aside their claims they go and litigate against them and at all levels so it is a huge cost to the government it is a huge uh, time pressure on the judiciary and it's a huge loss from the standpoint of the resolution not uh, you know being efficient because even if the court dismisses them straight away but the person who is the successful resolution applicant is not able to get the benefits that he supposed to and there is a loss of value of the asset so you know he is not really getting what he bid for in the process got that got that so besides this as part of 2.0 see there are several stakeholders to the ibc ecosystem hmm now what is your assessment of their role so far 
for instance, let's take Committee of Creditors, which is a very crucial limb of the IBC. Uh-huh. Now, there are a lot of criticisms on Committee of Creditors. People say there is no code of conduct. There are, nobody understands why they do what they do, right? Secondly, there is a criticism that haircuts have been disproportionately high. Do you mm-hmm. concur with that? What do we mean by disproportionate subjects? That's a very important uh, thing we need to see. So it's easy to criticize. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have been part of many committees of creators. And uh, uh, I think uh, at times it is frustrating as it is for uh, everybody in a process in which there are multiple people with multiple points of views involved. But uh, exactly. haircuts, are, uh, haircuts are a function of uh, a process which is run. It's a, invariably, it's a transparent process. All potential people who could look at the asset are looking at it. They will come in and they will put down the best value they can see for a particular asset. As we are seeing, these values on an average, in some cases they are very low, in some cases they are very high. On an average, they are three to four times what we used to get in the good old DRT proceedings. But as time passes, as the asset ages in the system, the value that is payable for it goes down further and further. And that is really the key concern that we have. If an asset is not functional, if the asset does not get resolved quickly, then it will lose value. But is that value disproportionately low? If there is no other buyer for it, you can hold the asset. And uh, over a period of time, it will further deteriorate in value. Okay. Finally, what happens is if you take it to liquidation, uh, at times the liquidation value savers may be marginally higher or marginally lower. And you say, why don't we take it to liquidation? We don't take it to liquidation because then you run another process, another cost and wait for a period of one to two years for that process to end. And what values we see on paper as liquidation value and all are not exactly what you will get in the market. So by the time you end that process, you will end up with even a worse value. Would that mean that we stay the course on haircuts without tinkering with the, any of the process or the procedure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every process will throw out some excellent results, some poor results, but mm-hmm. as long as overall the results are not flawed and you are getting mm-hmm. better than what a previous system had in place, I think there is no uh, merit in tinkering with the process. And this is, if you ask me, a very high quality process. And are there any sort of reforms that you expect IBC 2.0 to throw up as regards committee of creditors? As regards committee of creditors, I don't know if there will be any kind of regulation that comes on the committee of creditors. Because Mm -hmm. the committee of creditors themselves need to be, you know, they are acting, they have a fiduciary responsibility, but uh, they themselves are not monitored in any which manner. So I don't know if that is uh, contemplated uh, indeed by the government or not. Second thing is that the committee of creditors invariably, you know, there are different types of committees of creditors. And at times you have authorized representatives who are representing a large number of creditors, for example, home buyers. There we need to be very careful because these poor home buyers are not always, uh, you know, uh, very up to speed with the law nor do they have the means to individually interpret the law and come to their own conclusions. They are represented by an authorized representative who could or could not be making decisions uh, in their best interest. And uh, uh, it's a very disparate kind of group. So invariably, it gets led by one or two people who have a louder voice. 
and uh, that's where we have a lot of dangers and that's where we've been seeing a lot of disconnect disharmony and dissatisfaction so we need to see that these people are given proper guidance and uh, they are given proper protection under the law so that reminds me do you see the proposal which was issued by corporate affairs to bring in project wise insolvency for real estate so do you see that coming as part of ibc 2.0 i don't know whether it will come as part of ibc 2.0 or is there or a not. need to bring it i think is it is not need? sustainable it is in my opinion it is not sustainable because see what will happen mm-hmm. is that invariably when we are mm-hmm. looking at creditors creditors are not only home buyers when you look at creditors mm-hmm. in all large real estate companies you invariably have bank lending also okay so when banks right. lend they will have the security package as either a project or they would have a more pervasive security package across all projects so when you are taking mm. a particular asset to insolvency out of a company because the insolvency by definition has to be of the going concern then you will be creating mm. a lot more problems in terms of how are we going to demarcate and take out this asset so to call ring fence it and conduct the ring fenced assets uh, insolvency because of the interconnections it can well be done however especially when you go into real estate you go into smaller size projects very quickly what happens is you get smaller sized or individuals coming in rps with no uh, disrespect to their abilities but invariably you need a large team to manage complex cases so whether a uh, individual rp is there from a large firm or is an independent individual working uh, you need a team to support them so uh, if you are going to start bifurcating a company you can understand how complex it will be from every which perspective so i i think these complications are not going to be desirable okay got that now the second most crucial set of stakeholder are the insolvency professionals themselves right mm-hmm. there is so much of debate around one the skill level mm-hmm. to the ethical code of conduct at the level of the ips what are the next set of reforms that should be targeted at ips see when we talk about on the one hand we question skill levels on the second hand we question compensation and then we put it in a box around corrupt practices and ethics okay the answers become very evident so if you are going to hire higher skilled people who get paid as per market which was happening at the beginning of this entire uh, journey then the instances of people uh, you know uh, being able to do things differently start shrinking because a you are part of a larger organization and b you are uh, also well compensated therefore you know it is less likely that you would be able to uh, you know you would be tempted to go and undertake unscrupulous means also in the uh, uh, creditors are in a position to hire whoever is best for their purpose in terms of skill and are able to compensate it i think automatically a lot of things get taken care of now ibbi has done something in the right direction by promoting ipes and saying that uh, uh, you know ips themselves can run as insolvency professionals because in a sense when the ipe can be the uh, ip then it takes out or the rp takes out the individual in a certain sense from it also as we become larger and larger 
IPEs, uh, then the risk gets diversified and you form organizations and organizations that are working on the basis of certain rules, uh, principles, uh, risk mitigants, and so on and so forth. So I think uh, that is definitely the way Srivats uh, uh, going forward. But do you agree with IBBI stepping into the scene trying to regulate the fees? They have made a step in the right direction by mm. mandating what minimum fee should be, which is indeed what they have done. My last question, do you think the time is ripe for allowing pre-pack framework Ab for absolutely. large companies? Absolutely. Why? It is, the time is right because time is of essence when you are doing a resolution for a business which is a going concern. If the problem festers and when you go into insolvency while you get a lot of benefits like moratorium, all credit to the company gets pulled. All good manpower try to run away from the company and take up another job. So the business by definition, unless you've got a very strong RP sitting there running businesses, uh, most RPs also are risk averse and try to shut down businesses so that they don't take any personal liability. So what happens is that you are absolutely destroying the value of the business. If there is a pre-pack, then what happens is by definition, you're coming with a solution up front and that keeps the business alive. Once the business is alive and there is a shorter time to resolution, there will be value preserved and there'll be much higher recovery by all concerned. Got that. How hopeful are you that the next set of reforms will get legislated in, say, the monsoon session or the winter session? I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I had heard that uh, could have been taken up in the budget session itself. And do so, you have any comment on the cross-border insolvency or... Not really, not really. I think we should all focus on pre-packs, making the process more efficient. Great. So thank you and thanks a ton, Sumit, for all the insights and perspectives that you shared with Business Line in the State of the Economy BL podcast. I hope the audience also had a great time listening to Sumit's expertise on the issue IBC 2.0. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Srivats. Have a good day. Cheers.